Amen and good morning. Amen and good morning. There we go. Warming up, warming up. Open your scriptures if you would. We're going to the first chapter of Acts and also mark that with a finger or something or on your phone, ever how you mark it on your phone. And open also to Philippians 2. You're referring to those both in the message this morning and several others. Next week, we have a guest preacher, Dr. Brian Vickers, I think. Is that right, brother? And I look forward to that. He's a professor at Southern Seminary and a colleague of Pastor Chase's. Today, I'm wrapping up a four-week Easter series about Jesus. We're looking at the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus into heaven. You know, when you, when you, you always feel a need, at least as a preacher, unless you're John MacArthur, I mean that with tremendous respect, you always feel a need to have an opening anecdote, okay? MacArthur and Piper, those guys don't, they just preach. But for us normal folks, we feel like we need to have an anecdote, and so I was wondering, what am I going to do for an anecdote this morning? And uh, the teacher in our discipleship class helped me with this. Um, might have preferred that he picked a different day to do it, but he helped me with this anyway. We were talking about building teamwork and trust in the team, and he helped us understand the need for accountability and through relationships to be able to speak into situations in the lives of people in the church to, uh, to, to help them grow and be corrected and learn. And he used preaching as, a, as an illustration of that. He sort of, he sort of said... Uh, you know, we always sort of take the preacher in one of two ways. We always sort of give him commendatory remarks. We tell him how good he did. Uh, or when, and then when we go to lunch, we sort of bash him at lunch and all those kinds of things. And what he was trying to do was to teach us that we need to be able, where the, teacher, where the preacher fails, especially doctrinally, um, that we need to be able to speak, you know, brother, I, I enjoyed that word and, and I, I just might have, you know, just might have explored it a little differently this way or, or, or where did you get that comment that you made? That's a fair question for the preacher. It was a marvelous stroke of teaching for us. I just wish he would have brought it up on a week when Chase is preaching and not when I'm preaching. Uh, the community group members that we'll meet tonight, a couple of them were in the class and so, oh well, maybe tonight I'll do uh, child care with the kiddos and let them have a sermon discussion. The gospel tells us on the third day Jesus arose. So when we get to Acts chapter 1 in the account of the scripture we rejoin the narrative there 40 days later. Look with me in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We're reading that account. It's familiar to us. When we get to verse 9, 
it arrests our attention. It grabs our attention right there. As they were looking on, listening to Jesus, talking to him, he's back after the resurrection. They're excited. He's there. He's been telling them things are coming. But at this point, they're saying now he's ready to assume the kingship. After 100 years of Roman rule, Jesus is going to come in and put a stop to all of this. And instead, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and taken out of their sight. And four times, in verses 10 and 11, we're told where Jesus went. This Jesus went up from you into heaven. Now, I'm old enough to remember extraterrestrial travel and Star Trek characters. Beam me up, Scotty. Some of you will. Some of you may be uh, late-coming uh, Trekkies. That's okay. That's science fiction for us. Many of you know what I mean when I, when I talk about intraplanetary travel via the rainbow bridge of the Bifrost. That's actually based on Norse myths, more recently made popular through the travels of the Asgardians. Still make believe. So thinking about that, I used that illustration a couple of weeks ago. And as can happen sometimes to the preacher, the preacher is always challenged in the illustrations he uses because sometimes folks latch on to something that you said that's not necessarily sermon stuff. A couple of folks had to do a little survey with me after my sermon and they asked me who my favorite Marvel character was from that series of movies. And uh, my favorite hero is Captain America, red, white, and blue, military guy, good wins over bad. He's my favorite hero. But if I have to be honest with you, the character that I enjoy most is Loki. He is just so good at being bad. He is rich. And maybe that's just the dark side sort of tugging at me as I'm rooting for him. But tra traveling in space is not limited to books and movies. Debbie and I just finished a book on uh, Apollo 8. First space mission that actually orbited the moon. They had gone and gotten closer over time. This, this mission actually orbited the moon for a number of days. A quarter of a million miles away they went. And everything, it's amazing when you read books about that kind of science, way beyond me. That's why we have mathematicians. That's why we have engineers, otherwise known as geeks. And they get in the room and they figure all this stuff out right down to the nanosecond. Literally the nanosecond. And they, they go around the moon and then they make their way back. Some of you may have seen the movie Apollo 13. This preceded that. Some of you will recall Ronald Reagan's speech after the Challenger disaster in 1986, the space shuttle that crashed. Where Reagan quoted the famous John McGee poem, High Flight. The astronauts who were killed, Reagan said, had slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. Obviously, that lyric is poetic license that Reagan was using to comfort a mourning nation. But it's not licensed to say that about Jesus. About six weeks after Jesus rose from the tomb, Luke's gospel says he was carried into heaven. Jesus did slip the surly bonds of earth. And he is in direct proximity to the face of God. And so when we hear what poets and, and great creative and, and uh, inspirational writers write about, we draw our minds to the reality of Christ ascended. The New Testament has a lot to say about the ascended Jesus. Today, instead of diving in deeply to the, to the exposition of the Acts 1 passage, which, by the way, if someone were to ask, where do you get this doctrine of ascension? That's the first text that I would go to and show them that. 
It's a key text for us to think about it. But today we're just going to sort of go up to 30,000 feet. If I took a survey of you, I would think most of you or many of you would, would say, would ask you, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the ascension? And what Pastor Chase told me when I was preaching this, he said, he said, oh yeah, I preached on that. When my first series was through the book of Acts. I said, how long ago was that? And I think we calculated something to around three years ago. And I said, brother, I don't mean any offense, but do you reckon many of them rec- remember it? So I'm not going to exposit it this morning. I get, I, get, I get two chances to preach here in just three weeks, so I'm trying to get it all in, if you understand what I'm saying. Instead, I want to offer an overview. I want to just go up and offer an overview of the doctrine as a total here this morning. Last week, Pastor Chase used Revelation 1 to present a view of the risen Jesus as Son of Man in the throne room of God. He shared in that message about his resurrection, also the reality of his return, and how exciting that should make us, and how encouraged and comforted we should be about it. God's plan did not end with the resurrected Jesus, as monumental as that is. So this week, I want us to see that he ascended, and he was taken up to heaven. And he did that for his own glory. That happened for his own glory. And it also happened, brothers and sisters, for our good. For our good. I want to make three main observations about the ascension this morning. Got a slide, I think, with these three points on it. First, the ascension of Jesus connects us to the reality of heaven. Second, I want us to see that the ministry of Jesus continues. And third, I want us to see for our encouragement and for our application how the ascension of Jesus builds up or boosts the confidence that we as believers have in our assurance. As I said, there are many passages that talk about the uh, ascension. There are many passages that I drew from in bringing this passage, uh, bringing this message together. I'm going to reference a few of them. Two of them are primary, the passage that we read in Acts 1. We'll also look into Philippians 2 for just a moment and use them sort of as our anchor passages as we work through the text, I mean, work through the message. In the interest of establishing biblical support for the doctrine, I want us to first see how the, the ascension connects us to the reality of heaven. <clears throat> God's main locus of blessing is in heaven. It's somewhere. God's got to be somewhere. Now, he's omnipresent. I get that. He's everywhere at all times. But the main locus of his blessing and his honor and his glory is in what the Bible calls, place the Bible calls heaven. Jesus dwells bodily somewhere. He's not just floating around out there. So I want us to see that heaven is a real place. As we think about the ascension, how does that connect us to the realities of heaven? We actually see the notion of the ascension into heaven begin in the Old Testament. Three points that I want to make, or three examples that I want to bring before you with respect to that. In Genesis 5, we find the story of Enoch. You know the story. It's a fascinating chapter. You're reading through the obituaries there in chapter 5 of Genesis. And you're reading the formulas the same in every particular character. They lived a real long time, and then they died. And then you get to the next one. And he lived a real long time, and he had sons and daughters. And then he died. And that goes on and on and on until you get down to verse 21. And then you read about a guy named Enoch. Enoch, two things stand out when you read the verses about Enoch. One is that he was a righteous man. Twice it says to us that Enoch walked with God. We're not given much information about him. But somehow Enoch's life was different. Somehow Enoch's life was different from the rest of the guys that were listed in chapter 5 of Genesis. Also, in the remainder, like, unlike the remainder of chapter 5, there's no death notice here. It doesn't say that, and then he died. 
It says instead that God took him. God took him. So Enoch stands out. He's not told how that happened. We're not told if anyone saw it. We're just told that he was taken by God. A more dramatic ascension occurs in 2 Kings. Most of you remember the story of Elijah. And the context behind the passage that's coming up there uh, had to deal with Elijah passing off his authority, handing his, his prophetic baton to Elisha, if you will. That's where the story is focusing in 2 Kings chapter 2. This is a more dramatic story. It involves chariots and horses and walls of fire and whirlwinds. And Elijah's ascended into heaven. Recalling from the Gospels that Elijah was present at the transfiguration of Jesus when Moses and Elijah came down. I just have to wonder how fascinating the reunion must have been when Jesus ascended back into heaven and bumped again into Elijah. I just wonder about those kinds of things. The third reference that I want to make from the Old Testament occurs in a night vision. Perhaps in a dream that happened to God's prophet Daniel. In this vision, Daniel sees the ascended Jesus as the Son of Man being presented before the throne to the Ancient of Days, God. The text is packed with theological power, and it's, and it's, and it's loaded up with, with a notion of the authority of Jesus. Daniel 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Now draw in your mind, clouds of heaven, there came one, think Acts 1, taken up by a cloud. There came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The ascended Jesus, if you will, is handed the king's scepter, given authority over all people, over all creation, for all time. I highlight this one to help us see that the ascension of Jesus into heaven was God's plan all along. All along. All three of those references are interesting, and, and some of them are very dramatic. The, the Elijah story is full of drama. And all three revelations point, though. All three revelations, all of the great drama and stories and types and testimonies in the Old Testament do, they point to one who is greater. Shift over to the New Testament, and we look at our two main texts this morning. Acts 1 will give us the signals about what's going on, and I think Philippians 2 offers some structure or foundation for what takes place in the ascension. There are applications in both of these passages that I will share at the end. For now, turn with me back to Acts 1. We'll look again at verses 9 through 11. Jesus had just given them their marching orders. When he had said these things in verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So those verses not only tell us that Jesus ascended, they also promise Jesus' return. Two observations I would make. Jesus ascended as flesh and bones. Flesh and bones, a physical presence. Don't miss that because that foreshadows what's going to happen to you and I. At some point, we too will, will be given back resurrection bodies. 
You know, every believer, I think, I've talked to him, you know, we always sort of sit around, and at least those of us who are not quite so, uh, quite so, um, how do I say this? Those of us who just like to talk about things in the Scripture and, and, and uh, just for conversation's sake, you know, just sort of say, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. We sort of wonder what we might look like in heaven. Personally, I'm hoping for more hair and a little less belly. I don't know what you're hoping for, and I don't know what God's going to do. I could be balder and even bigger. <laughs> Somehow it'll be good. <laughs> Seriously, um, following the examples of Jesus, there appears to be some continuity with our current appearance. The point of this is not to dwell on this. The point of this is what, whatever we look like, the Bible indicates that we're going to be physical creatures. Jesus ascended as flesh and bones. And the promise of Jesus' return echoes his promise to the apostles in John 14 that we read from. It's meant to give them at that point. Jesus is gathered with his closest disciples right then, preparing them for his departure. Preparing him for the cross and then for his departure. He was working with them, and he told them about this. There's, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and get you so that you can be with me. And he does that to give them and us hope. So the New Testament passage in Acts 1 gives us signals of what to look for. If you're still holding your spot, turn now to Philippians 2. Thinking about this as I was working on the message, over the last four weeks, I think all four of us have landed on this passage. Joshua used it as his main preaching text. I know I looked into it when we talked about the kingship of Jesus. We've looked at this, and it's, it's no accident that we've done that. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11, provides a very concise, yet a very comprehensive narrative about Jesus, both from his pre-incarnate state all the way to his post-resurrection state. If you want to learn about Christ in just a couple of verses, take them to that passage. Help them think through and work through that passage about who Jesus is. Verse, in chapter 2 of Philippians, let's just look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has... We know what's happened here. He's humbled himself to the, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I think about those verses in the context of the ascension, I see them as establishing a theological foundation or a structure for the ascended Jesus. It reminds me that God is sovereign over everything that is taking place here. The passage affirms several things about the ascended Jesus that connects us, if you will, to the realities of heaven. Look, draw your focus in on Christ and think with me. From verse 8, we see that Jesus fulfilled the ministry that God gave to him. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in verse 9, the sacrifice that Jesus gave of himself satisfied the purposes of God. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And through the resurrection, we see that God won and Satan lost. If you're an ameniter, that's a time to say amen. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
And then in verse 11, we see that the ultimate objective of all of this, including the ascension of Jesus, the ultimate objective of all of this is God's glory, to the glory of God the Father. So we see the structure be put underneath the ascension, what's taking place here. The summary of those two passages is that nothing is happening by chance. God is providentially governing every piece according to his perfect plan and purpose. And we come to 1 Peter, and he helps us with one verse. One more New Testament reference in chapter 3, verse 22. Peter tells us that heaven is the current resting place of Jesus, the current home of Jesus. He says he is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to to him. And I think this helps us dig in a little bit deeper to what's taking place in the ascension, drawing in for us the realities of heaven and how the ascension connects to that. First, we see a general location. Jesus has gone where? He's gone into heaven. As Peter writes that, he's echoing Luke 24, verse 51. He's echoing four times that it was mentioned in Acts 10 and 11. It's there for us to draw our attention to it. Now, I want to be honest with you here, researched and thought and Red, scholars continue to debate where heaven is. Is it in the sky? They looked up. Is it in space? Some even debate, is heaven a real place? The Bible said Jesus went to a place. The Bible says he went somewhere. It's a place called heaven in the scriptures. Wherever it is or whatever it looks like, it's where Jesus is where God's presence is most fully known and connected with. It's where the throne of God is. These are all scriptural references that help us locate the reality of heaven. The Bible only provides a glimpse of these realities, but we can know that heaven is real because the Bible tells us so. Let me make a hermeneutical, let me make an interpretive point for you here. Unless you have reason to quibble with what the Bible says, take it for what it says. And if your reason to quibble just because you're struggling with the mysteries of it. Bow before the Lord and ask him to bring your heart to catch up with your mind with respect to the truth of God's word. Peter makes reference to a general location, but he also provides a reference to a specific location. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Where? At the right hand of God. That's helpful because it conveys two realities for us. The first reality is this. Jesus is in the immediate presence of God the Father. God answered the prayer that Jesus made for him in John 17. When he said, restore me to the glory that I knew with you before I came. God has glorified his son in his own presence with the same glory that Jesus had with him before the world existed. That matters because Jesus has been given a seat of honor and authority at the right hand. You remember well, the, uh, the John and James were lobbying Jesus. For the place of proximity and influence. They were sort of sneaking around trying to do this. Of course, the other disciples heard about that. They got indignant because they didn't get a say. They wanted to have a say in this. In fact, one time, one of the Gospels refers to us as their mother coming up to Jesus and asking this favor for them. So proximity and access and influence are important. And Jesus shows us this in the sense that he is at the right hand of God, con conferred upon him great honor and authority. He has exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above all names. And when you think of that expression, yes, think Lord, think glory, think honor, think power, think authority, think Jesus. That's who he is and where he is and what he's doing right now. 
the first point we want to see here, that the ascension is real and that it is true and it's magnificent. It explodes with realities for us about heaven. Heaven is real. God is there. Jesus is at his right hand. Whatever the mystery is that we cannot conceive in concrete ways in our minds, it's, there's some abstraction to it here. It's mysterious. But we can take it for truth because the Bible tells us that it is so. And Jesus is waiting at this time, in this moment, until God makes enemies into footstools for him. Second point deals with the ongoing ministry of Jesus. Okay, he's there. What's he doing? What's he doing? What's Jesus? What's Jesus? Is he, is, there's two questions that, that this answers for us. Why did he ascend? When we look about what Jesus is doing, why did he ascend and what's he doing up there? The ascension, I would say for you, continues the ministry of Jesus. Here's question one. Why did Jesus ascend? Now, there's two parts to the answer. I'm going to try to go slow enough so that you're able to track with me. Two parts to the answer. Two questions. You're going to love this teaching component here. Two questions. Both questions have two parts to the answer. Yeah? Here we go. Part one to question one. I think you can stay with me. It's not that hard. Why did Jesus ascend? First, it was the plan of God for Jesus to ascend. We saw that in Daniel 7. Jesus makes great reference to this over and over in John 14 through 16. And two thoughts that I'll highlight about that. First, it was God's plan so that he could affirm and confirm, he could verify that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for the work that it was meant to do. For everyone who will repent and believe, Jesus died for you. He rose again. He was ascended into heaven. That happened because God was pleased with what Jesus accomplished. Hebrews 10, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, by this single offering, Jesus perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it was God's plan to verify the sacrifice of Christ through the resurrection and the ascension. Sufficient for everyone who will trust in Christ. Jesus also ascended. So that Jesus would be given honor and glory for his obedience. That's a Philippians 2 reference. He's highly exalted, given the highest name, demands exclusive worship. His ascension affirmed the ministry, his ministry of atonement, and it affirmed that he alone is worthy of this honor and glory that is given to him. Part two of the answer to question one why did Jesus ascend? He did it for his glory, remember? He also did it for our good. He did it for our good. To encourage and equip the children of God. Jesus said to the apostles, this always blows my mind. It's to your advantage that I leave. I'm going away. It's to your advantage that I'm going away. That always blows my mind. Now, it's easy for us because we're looking at it 2,000 years later. And we've not seen or touched or listened to the physical Jesus. But imagine being with Jesus for three years. Imagine watching him die on a cross. Uh-oh, that didn't work out so well. Imagine him raised again three days later. Oh, this is better. I like this. And then he comes and he says, I'm going away. Wait a minute, Jesus. What's that all about? And it's better for you that I'm leaving. Right, right. Yeah, just, just, just appease him. Shake your head. How could it be for our good that Jesus went to heaven? There's a, there's a bunch of reasons. I'm going to give you four. 
from Acts 1 because only Jesus going to heaven meant that the Holy Spirit would come. Bible truth, you and I will not endure without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Reason number two, John 14, 12. Because the Holy Spirit enables believers to do greater work than Jesus did while he was on the earth. We're not talking greater in quality. We're talking greater in quantity. Because the Spirit dwells in all of us, the gospel can go out and accomplish what God chooses for it to do. In the eyes of God, who sent Jesus to seek and save the lost, that's a greater work. It's a greater work for us. would not have happened unless Jesus went to heaven. Reason number three from Hebrews 7, 25. Because Jesus intercedes for you and me, we are able to draw near to God through the ascended Jesus and be saved. Reason number four. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. It was good for Jesus, good for us, for Jesus to ascend into heaven because it offers proof and promise for our own future ascension. Because he's done it. And the Bible tells us how that transpired to the degree that God wants us to know. We too can look forward to that. If it had never happened, how much harder would it be for us to embrace that? Since it has happened, that's God's grace moving to shore up our faith and strengthen us. Question one, why did Jesus ascend? Because it was the plan of God essentially to, to, to affirm and verify the sacrifice was sufficient. So that Jesus would be given glory through that. And he also ascended to encourage and equip you and I as children of God. Question two, what's Jesus doing there? What's he doing there? He's not idle. He's just not biding his time. He's active on our behalf. He reigns first as king over his people. Now, at this point, let me set a context here. At this point in God's plan of redemption, the kingdom of God is focused primarily in the hearts of their believers. We could could quibble about the definition of all of that. But the kingdom of God is focused primarily in the hearts of his believers. The new covenant helps us understand that Jesus' authority as king in this time is principally demonstrated in the lives of believers. Not exclusively, but principally. Okay? So three things. First, how does he reign as king in heaven? He reigns in us through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our, we seem described in these ways in Scripture. He's our helper. He's our teacher. He's our comforter. He's our guide. That's Jesus reigning over us in the kingdom. Second, he governs us by the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that that word is living and active. It pierces and discerns in us. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 talks about the sufficiency of the word of God to instruct and correct, to generally make us righteous. Just a side note. For a while, I haven't seen one come out in a little while, but for a while there were sort of repeat stories about trips to heaven where somebody came back. You know what I'm talking about. Books and movies have said such things. The danger of those is they begin to move you away from trusting in the sufficiency of God's Word. Be careful with them. If you read them, read them for what they're worth, but be careful with them. The Word of God is sufficient for you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 helps us with that most particularly. So God is reigning in us through His Holy Spirit. He is governing over us with His Word, and He is caring for us. Guess how He's caring for us? Through the church. He's caring for us through the church. 
In Matthew 18, we see that the church is given the keys to the kingdom. The church is called to discern true believers from non-believers. Under the power of the Spirit, obviously there's fallibility mixed into that, but that's the church's responsibility. And in Ephesians 4 and Hebrews 13, we're reminded the church is gifted with leaders to serve the flock of God as under-shepherds of Jesus. So he's reigning over us uh, through his Holy Spirit. He's governing us with his word, and he's caring for us in the church. That's part one to the answer of what Jesus is doing. Part two, he reigns as king. Part two, he ministers as priest over the church. We don't want to miss either one of those because both of them are critical. One of them speaks more prominently to Jesus as Lord and our king and our, and our authority in our lives. And that's good and it's healthy for us to understand that. We don't want to leave that out. The second one speaks to Jesus' love and compassion and care for us as our priest. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. I get that. I get that. But look at him in both ways. He ministers to us as priest over the church. As priest, he is our righteous advocate before the Father. I'm going to come back to that. As priest, he prays for the endurance of the saints. I spoke earlier about this, but it's worth repeating. As our priest, he is at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalves so that he might save to the uttermost those who approach. I'm going to suggest a specific application here for some of us. Brother elders, I want to exhort you as I exhort myself. To be faithful to pray for the endurance of the members under your watch care. To not take that for granted. To not buy the doctrine of once saved, always saved so deeply that you never go before the throne of God and intercede spiritually on behalf of the people that are under your watch care. You can pray no more important prayer for them. I don't care what's going on in the situation in their life than to pray about their relationship with God at any given moment. I exhort myself to that too, brothers, as I mentioned that. Community group leaders... I exhort you in similar ways. Be faithful to pray for the endurance of the members in your groups. We are rightly driven to pray for needs. That's perfectly appropriate and right and good. Do not take that and leave the other alone. Pray first and most prominently for the state of their soul and the state of their relationship before God at any given moment. It's not accusatory. It's not legalism. It's effective ministry. Because all of us are under attack. All of us are battling with different issues with respect to sin. Pray, brothers. God has ordained the intercession. Jesus, by his example, shows us that God has ordained the intercession of his under-shepherds to be means for the endurance of the saints. So as priest, Jesus is our righteous advocate. He prays for endurance of the saints. Third, he remains at the ready to return for his saints. What good a priest would it be if he went up there and... We needed to be brought up, and he said, not my job. Get some other guy to do that. I'm not doing that. How good would your elders be? How good would those who are in leadership over you be if at your hour of bringing you closer spiritually, you just sort of say, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm a king, but I'm not too keen on this priest stuff. And so we see the value of Jesus being at the ready. Several times in John's gospel, Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'll be back. I'll be back. Right now I'm going where you can't go. They're scratching their heads. They're clueless what he's talking about. But he said, soon you will be able to go, and I'll come and get you, and I'm preparing a place for you. He's not idle in heaven, brothers and sisters. At the moment of his ascension, the angels said the same thing. That must have been immensely encouraging as they're watching him ascend into heaven. Think about your children, how, how separation anxiety. 
You're dropping them off, and they're losing it. And you're trying to persuade them, I'm coming back, it's going to be okay. And if it's that calamitous for them, imagine what it would be for us if we did not have the promise of Jesus' return. Paul speaks to this promise for grieving saints in Thessalonica after their loved ones have passed away. Death is not the end, brothers and sisters. For believers, in a very real sense, death is the beginning. There's much to absorb. I know I'm giving you a bunch of stuff here this morning. This is just a small sampling. Jesus ascended. He ascended for his glory. He ascended for our good. Heaven is real. Jesus is, is active serving as our king and as our priest. The final point helps us answer the so what question. The ascension brings confidence for our assurance. This is summary. I know it is. I'm repeating myself some here. But I think it's worth it to encourage us and build us up this morning. The ascension serves to build confidence in our assurance in two ways. First, through the faithfulness of God. Second, through us understanding our responsibility. Assurance is connected to both of those. Assurance is connected primarily... I'll go there primarily to the faithfulness of God. We can stand on His promises with respect to our salvation, the sufficiency of the blood of Christ, etc. We can stand on that because of who God is and that, he, that, that when He says He will do something, He's going to do it. We can stand there. But we also have a role to play in our own assurance. We have a role to play. Stay with me here. These are short, pithy statements that suggest that God's faithfulness encourages for us four encouragements. Four of them. One, the ascension of Jesus, the faithfulness of God through the ascension of Jesus secures our justification. It secures it because the ascension confirms that the sacrifice was sufficient. Second, God's faithfulness through the ascension of, of, of uh, Jesus provides for our sanctification. I mentioned this earlier. Under Jesus' authority, the church is equipped to nurture us into spiritual maturity. Third, the ascension builds our confidence in the faithfulness of God because it enables our preservation. I referenced this earlier from Hebrews 7. Dive into John's first letter for just a moment because it also speaks to this. You know the passage beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 is in there as a sweet promise about confessing and being restored and cleansed, forgiven. Then we come back to verse 10, and verse 10 says, If we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. What's John's point here? His point is we're going to sin. His point is we're going to sin, and, and he tells us first how to, how to deal with that sin in the moment with respect to confession. But as our sins beat down on us and begin to, begin to cause us to have doubt, they begin, to, they begin to convict us, and if we, especially if we let the enemy get in on that and begin to whisper to us, man, you, you say you're a believer, and that's, I'm counting, that's the 18th time you've done that. I don't know if he does that in your life or not, but he'll try to whisper that to me. Maybe I ought to not do stuff 18 times. But he says, John then says, starting the new chapter, and it's all one section really, but in verse 1 of chapter 2, if anyone does sin, for all of you who do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is where the ascension is building confidence for our assurance. Because Jesus is in heaven, 
He is our advocate with the Father at the right hand of the throne of God, advocating for us so that we will not make shipwreck of our faith. He secures our justification. He provides for our sanctification. He enables our preservation. Fourth, He foreshadows our glorification. New Testament passages um, don't say a whole lot about our resurrected body, but it does tell us some things. I'm drawing principally here from 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and 1 John 3, verse 2. Like Jesus, we will have a physical body. 1 Corinthians 15. It's a spiritual nature to it. I get it. Some of you guys are, I, I get it. There's a spiritual nature to it. But we will have a physical body. Like Jesus, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, oh, by the way, it's a marvelous memory verse. Grab that and memorize it. It will sweeten your spirit, especially in dark hours. So like Jesus, we're going to have a physical body. Like, like, like we will also reflect the glory of Jesus in our resurrected body. And we will possess a spiritual likeness to him. That's what 1 John 3.2 tells us. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. What? So he's foreshadowing in his ascension. He's foreshadowing our glorification. All of these are implications that flow out of the ascension of Jesus. And they serve to build our confidence. The faithfulness of God. We can rest assured in that faithfulness. But we cannot rest in idleness. The scripture will not let us do that. We have a part to play. We have a part to play thinking of the assurance that we get from Christ's ascension. We have a part to play. There's a slide for this, brothers. Is it up there already? Bring this other slide up, please. Two expectations. These I'm drawing one from Acts 1 and one from Philippians 2. Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus' ascension calls us to share this gospel of heaven and hope with all who do not yet believe. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's interesting that Jesus' final words are missional. His final words. He left believers with a specific mission. Be my witnesses. Go and make disciples. That's telling for us. It's not incidental. I'm thankful for the season now where we'll be raising money for the Annie Armstrong, collecting money for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. I have the blessed privilege of being involved with the North American Mission Board at a very uh, distant level, but still some involvement with him. I believe in that ministry, support it wholeheartedly. My, my daily job, when I get paid for, is involved in that sort of window as well, so I'm thankful for it. I'm unashamed to champion that ministry, if I can say it this way. It was a great illustration for us to think about the notion of going and making disciples, of being witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why did Jesus say that last? Why didn't he say, don't forget, I'll be back to get you? Perhaps it's because Jesus has ascended, but Jesus came for a reason. He came to seek and save the lost. He has ascended, but the mission continues. Jesus will return, and at some point, the opportunity to repent and believe will end. Fellow saint, you and I are not just called to marvel in our assurance. We're called to use it. It's supposed to mean something to us so that we can take the gospel to our neighbor across the street, 
or in the workplace or in the schoolhouse or at the gym or in the chair next to you in this church. We're equipped and we're exhorted. There are unsaved people all around us. And here's the blessing. I'm not sure the church has figured out yet. And I'm chief of sinners here. If I read the Gospels right, especially Mark 13, I think there's a reference also in Matthew, I'm not positive. Mark 13.10 says that before the end comes, the Gospel must be taken to all the nations. So, by implication, our missional work will hasten the return of Jesus. So it begs the question, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? We say heaven is better. Well, we don't want to tell anybody because that might make Jesus hurry up. I know how silly it sounds. Yes, I got four grandkids. I would love to see them grow, I think. I would love to see them grow up. Heaven is better. I want to be with Jesus. What are we waiting for? So the first expectation is that we are to uh, share a gospel of heaven and hope with all who do not yet believe. Be witnesses. Secondly, for Philippians 2, going back up to verse 5, Jesus' ascension calls us to imitate the humility of Jesus. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. I thought about a way to describe this in a short phrase, in a preacher phrase, if you will. And I think this applies as I was reflecting on it. We read the Gospels, and there's much going on in the Gospels that um, is not applicational in the sense of some sort of imperative or command. It's a lot of story. It's great. Don't misunderstand me. But it's a lot of story. And so sometimes you have to read the Gospels and you have to think through, how do I apply this? What do I do with this? Besides immerse yourself in the love and, and the uh, grace of God in it. That's devotional and appropriate. But I want, to, I want to coin a term for you perhaps this morning uh, that we might call what Paul is calling us to us in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Application by imitation. Application by imitation. Jesus had the mind of humility and he had a mind for sacrifice. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How do we apply that? By imitating it. By being obedient before God. By sacrificing ourselves for the good of others, especially for the sake of those who are not yet believers. In God's economy, the way up is down. The path of being exalted by God is to humble ourselves before God. Peter helps us again here. Verse Peter 5, to imitate this humility. He tells us in the second half of verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. That's always an indicting statement to me. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, Peter writes. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, when God chooses, he will exalt you. He goes on to say, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's a little harder edged, but he's not without love and pastoral affection. Jesus humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. For the sake of others, he was obedient, even to death on a cross. And guess what? At the proper time, God exalted him. Jesus didn't know. If he did, he didn't say. Not up to me. And finally, as he got to the very end, the scriptures might seem to indicate that he knew the hour was upon him. Nevertheless, he was humbling himself so that at the proper time, God would exalt him. 
We apply that by imitation. Paul says over and over, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of God. It's not a new concept. Perhaps it's one that will help us remember when we're reading narrative accounts, especially reading about Jesus. We can't do everything Jesus did, obviously. We're not Christ. But there are things we can draw from his life that we can imitate. That's our model. We're called to imitate Jesus, have the same mind that he has. This great doctrine has many implications. Today we just looked at three. We looked at him, his ascension connecting us to the realities of heaven. We looked at his ascension reminding us that he continues to serve and minister to us, even in heaven, for the sake of the Father. And we looked at the fact that this, this notion of ascension of Jesus is meant to build our assurance, to have confidence in our assurance. But before I wrap up, I want to suggest to you There is no confidence in heaven for those who have yet to place their faith in the ascended Jesus. There's none. None. God has set the means to have a relationship with him. Jesus declared it as some of the first words out of his mouth in Mark's gospel. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Perhaps you've been here the last three or four weeks and you've heard this little short series focusing in on Jesus and his humanity and his, his kingship and his resurrection. And today, we're looking at the doctrine of ascension. Maybe in all of this, there's been some, some, some peeling back of, of some confusion or some uh, cloudiness in your mind about these great truths about Jesus. I pray that that has been so for you. Maybe, maybe you sense in, this, in these last three or four weeks in particular that God has been tugging at your heart through the preaching of His Word and the, the revelations about Jesus, most particularly in these last three or four weeks. If that's true for you, or if you're just generally trying to discover more about what it means to become a Christian, I want to invite you to seek out a pastor today before you leave. Please don't leave here thinking, I'll I'll deal with this some other time. If you truly sense that the Lord is tugging at your heart, respond today to that. Check, ask someone to sit down with you, talk with you about that. I want to plead with you to do that today because the enemy is such that he will work and we will be distracted and in two hours we'll quit thinking about it. Pastors, people sitting next to you perhaps sit down with you and take you through the scriptures and show you what it means to repent and to place your faith in Jesus. It's our delight and our desire that we do so. God's plan did not end with the risen Jesus, spectacular as that is. Jesus ascended for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great doctrine and how it can layer down into our lives if we spend some time thinking about it. Father, I teased early on about questioning the preacher, but I pray in the name of your Son that if there is anything that has been spoken wrongly from this platform this morning, that your Spirit would move into that heart and fix it for them. Thank you, Father, that your Word is powerful and able to pierce and discern and correct and make us righteous. Thank you, Father, that it is your gospel that is your power unto salvation for all who will believe. Thank you, Father, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen, 
and that he reigns in heaven, advocating for us and waiting for his time when he will come back to consummate his kingdom once and for all. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we